It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by HBO and the new documentary series, The Jinx The Life and Deaths of Robert. Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 2nd, 2015. On this week's show, ESPN.com's Kevin Pelton will join us to talk about the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and the state of stats in pro sports. We'll also discuss Larry Sanders' struggle with depression and anxiety, his decision to leave the NBA and walk away from tens of millions of dollars. Ben Rothenberg will be here to tell us about the scourge of match-fixing in tennis. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the lives and legacies of basketball players Anthony Mason, Jerome Kersey, and Earl Lloyd, the latter of whom was the NBA's first black player. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. I'd like to propose a word, Josh. The lattice. When you list three, it is ladder, right? It should be ladder, the last of a list. But I always think of ladder as opposed to the former, one of two. So in a list, maybe it should be the lattice. I'm going to make a note of that. Thank you. <laughs> I know that Stefan has inroads to the dictionary people. I do. <laughs> yeah. I do. I actually just can make notes of You have things. to start using yes. lattice a lot, Mike. Yeah. You've got to just start using it for years and years, and then you'll get in. Right. You'll get or, it in the dictionary. Or, alternately, have Taylor Swift use it once. <laughs> That'll work, too. 
Um, we are now part of a brand new podcast network called The Lattice, actually. It's a rebrand. <laughs> um, we just rebranded it. They're going to be pissed at me because it's only been a few days. So people can't might make, you can't actually think that that's true. Yes. Um, it's called Panoply. Right. It's not called The Lattice, everyone. <laughs> it's called Panoply, Panoply, Panoply. I always wanted to be a part of a network. Um, I wanted to be a part of Vile from uh-huh. Carmen Sandiego, the Villains International League of Evil. But Panoply... Will do just fine if I can't be a part of Vile. You are a panoply uh, panelist. I am. It's a complete or impressive collection of things. That's what the word means. A splendid display. Or also third definition, Stefan, complete set of arms or suit of armor. Mm-hmm. I like to think of us as a full set of armor. Well, I thought of Hang Up and Listen as more like the gorget, the part of the armor that covers the throat. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you only have your throat covered, that means that all of your limbs can be chopped off. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have the full suit of armor. You got to have the political gab fest to cover your left arm. You got the culture fest. Um, we've got the ethicists from the New York Times Magazine. They'll cover your ethics, <laughs> your ethics part. Yeah. Uh, your, your head. Uh, the Vulture TV podcast from New York Magazine. Whistle Stop. New podcast about political campaign history hosted by Slate's John Dickerson. Other partners, including Real Simple, Food 52, The Huffington Post, The Constitution Center of Popular Science, WBRI Radio, and the FX TV show, The Americans, which cover, we don't, we don't know which part of the body of the, the from, Americans From covers. gorget to gauntlet, we cover it all. Um, you will be able to hear Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on all major podcast apps. And to hear some of the first offerings of the Panoply Network right now, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we're going to spell that one out. It's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. All right. Now time for our first segment of the day on the Hang Up and Listen show. Uh, When the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference started in 2007, math had barely been invented. Uh, Houston Rockets stats whiz Daryl Morey spent the entire day by himself playing with a giant abacus. (laughs) And now, just eight years later, the Sloan Conference has gone mainstream. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred were featured on panels, along with team owners, general managers, athletes, and the sharpest minds in sports. But just because analytics are mainstream doesn't mean that every team values them to the same degree. We are now joined by ESPN.com's Kevin Pelton, who spent the weekend at Sloan and just spearheaded ESPN's great analytics rankings, which looked at how all 122 uh, baseball, basketball, hockey, and pro football teams use or do not use data. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, it doesn't seem like it was just eight years ago that we were inventing math. It's amazing how time flies. <laughs> well, before math was invented, we have no way of knowing how long it was, <laughs> right? What, with, what day did God invent the sun? And then there's that theological debate about how many days do you know it was beforehand? Anyway, I reference Inherit the Wind. Go ahead. <laughs> so, Kevin, there's this kind of paradox going on at Sloan, at least that I've perceived from that outside, is that... Um, Analytics and sports are mainstream now, but at the same time, it seems like the secrets that teams are discovering are more closely guarded. Um, did you see that at this year's conference that um, people were kind of holding stuff close to the vest? Yeah, that's been kind of the nature of it for a while, and uh, is the panels that they have at the conference have evolved. You know, originally it was a lot of outsiders and people who could freely share their opinions, but, you know, is is analytics becomes more valued, it also becomes a competitive advantage, and there starts to be a lot of secrecy, and, and certainly teams don't want to give away what they're doing if they think that the uh, rest of the league is not caught up with them. 
so with a lot of general managers, coaches, players, people like that on panels, uh, there is sometimes a tendency to just kind of speak in generalities as opposed to getting into anything specific. Well, why should there be? I mean... Uh, isn't it the secret sauce? Isn't I, Sure, you could argue that information is free or wants to be free and all that, but I totally see the logic of guarding most of it, or can you make another case? Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense from the team standpoint. It's just kind of strange in the evolution of the field as a whole. And it's the difference, I think, really in basketball in particular, and maybe get to this point in hockey, which is kind of catching up, I think, uh, over the last year or so. It was fun to see that there was actually a hockey corner at the gathering we traditionally have uh, the night before the Sloan Conference at the Fours, a, a local sports bar. But, you know, in baseball, where teams really didn't care about this for the first, you know, decade or two of its evolution, that allowed it to happen entirely in public, and people could build off each other's ideas and things like that, and that's been a little bit more difficult in basketball, because someone comes up with a really great idea, you know, starts coming, posting interesting things on their website or blog, and then not long later, you see that they've been hired by a team. Kyle Wagner has a piece on uh, Deadspin headline, sports analytics, in quotation marks, is bullshit now. And the, the basic premise seems to be a reasonably fair one, Kevin, and it takes some shots at the ESPN piece that you guys put together, the package ranking teams, on the grounds that, well, ranking teams doesn't really make much sense anymore because it's not about how much teams are using analytics because just about everybody except for the real troglodytes aren't doing much with numbers. It's how at this point you harness the numbers and, and reading through the rankings, it was a lot of how much and who we've hired. But at this point, aren't we sort of post analytics in some way? It's really, are you succeeding or not? Are you doing well or not? You know, I, I think it's probably depends on the sport. I think in baseball, it seems to me that there are somewhat less gradations in terms of the investment. On the basketball side, I, I think there are still very real differences. You know, five years ago, even a couple of years ago, the question was, do you have someone doing this? Right. And that's no longer the question, because everyone has checked that box and has someone doing this. But there are certainly different levels of investment in terms of, you know, the number of people, which has become even more important as teams try to work their way through these massive amounts of sport view data that the league is now providing with cameras in every arena. And then the other thing I think you can tell from their investment is, you know, it's a, there's a difference in how seriously you're taking it if you've got one person in a relatively low role in the front office who's responsible for this as opposed to it's your assistant GM, it's your director of basketball operations. Those kinds of titles are an important clue into how seriously you're taking things. But, but yeah, I mean, but a lot but of it is how well you're using it, and we kind of have to read the tea leaves based on what the team plays like on the court and what your moves look like. Well, circling back to what Mike said, I think there's a difference between information being free and analysis being free, and just the different stages, like you were saying, Kevin, with baseball kind of getting into this stuff earlier, there um, is just this vast store of information that analysts inside and outside teams can look at. And the issue, I think, for NBA fans and people who aren't employed by teams is that now the data itself is being um, hoarded. And the, that, it seems like, could present a problem. Like, there's no issue with teams hoarding their analysis of the data, but let's uh, get the numbers out there so people outside the sport can do something cool with it too. 
Yeah, I know that came up with one of the better research paper presentations this year. The I believe the co-winner of the prize was uh, a group that Kirk Goldsberry has led that has been working with SportView data. Last year, they were looking at you know offensively how we chart the expected value of a possession with every pass, every player movement, that sort of thing through the course of the 24 seconds. This year, they focused on the defensive end and you know sort of how you can view the uh, impact that players have on their opponent's shooting, but they were limited to 2013-14 data because uh, the numbers for this year were not available for them. So that was a bit of an issue. One of the most interesting things that I read about it was all about Shane Battier and him talking about a couple things. One, he really wouldn't tell superstars like LeBron James tips, but once in a while he'd sneak it in, like, this guy likes to shoot over this shoulder sort of thing, but didn't want to mess with his flow, right? And Battier also said that it totally destroyed his creativity. He said that it helped him, but he doesn't think he took whatever, a shot outside, a jump shot outside the paint in his last, like, couple years. That is a tension, it seems. And it also gets to another tension, which is you have these really charismatic coaches who often stand in the face of analytics, and as much as it's a stereotype, I do think it's true that analytics are, analytics are a little bloodless and they take a little bit more for a player to really endorse. And Shane Battier can endorse it, but maybe, you know, other players can't. I mean, is that a next wave to sort of incorporate passion into analytics and don't make them restrictive, but make them liberating? I think that's when you start to get more nuance in the numbers. You know, at this point, it's often about kind of the, the low-hanging fruit of insights. So, you know, the, the corner three is good, the long two is bad. Definitely true overall, but then you get nuance into different parts of the possession. With the shot clock running down, just getting a shot off is a good thing. I think uh, Mike Zarin, the Celtics assistant GM, was trying to make this point on his panel because that question came up with, you know, the one time that Battier had taken a long two in the last couple of years of his career. He was, you know, he was like, the, I had no other choice. The shot clock was running down. And Darren made the point, like, in that situation, it's a good shot. Everything uh, depends on that. So there's, there's still room for, I think, you know, the, the heroic, crazy desperation shot. Uh, I think of, you know, this wasn't actually a shot, but last night's game, uh, the Celtics and the Warriors here in Boston that we attended, one of the most amazing plays was, you know, the Warriors were struggling to get the ball up court late in the game. We're about to get a half-court violation, and Steph Curry just turns and throws a desperation heave to get the ball across half-court and miraculously finds a teammate, and the Warriors go on to score on that possession and win the game. You know, from a pure, like, if you don't understand the context, the decision to throw a blind pass from the backcourt is a terrible one. But in that moment, it was the best thing for Steph Curry to do, and it ended up being, um, you know, really fun play to watch. Kevin, how how long do you think we need to really get a good assessment of whether we've just been sort of spinning media narratives about, ooh, the Sixers are on the cusp of something and they've got a real plan and the Astros are doing things differently? Two teams, by the way, that you did rank fairly highly for their approach to analytics. When you look at the Sixers particularly, they are you know sort of pushing the boulder down the hill. And we just don't know when what they're doing comes to fruition because I, it's hard for us as fans to tell like what the plan exactly is when there's so much roster cycling and this sort of this, this adherence to the notion that, oh, we're going to get some good players down the road. So what is analytics actually yielding as far as we know from teams like the Sixers and the Astros? I guess in baseball, it's a little easier to tell because we have farm systems. We have, we have sub teams. Right, as opposed to you're just waiting on these draft picks that have, 
you know, some typical value, but don't exist in real life at this point. And even among this group, you know, even among NBA analysts who are gathered, there's a lot of discussion about whether the Sixers are doing the right thing, whether this is going to eventually work out for them down the road. And it's kind of different when you look at it from the micro level, deal by deal, Every single move seems to make sense, and they're adding value. You know, trading Michael Carter-Williams for this Lakers-protected pick, there's a chance that it could end up being a much better player than Michael Carter-Williams. And you know, their whole thing is the appetite for risk because we don't want to just be good. We want to be great. But at the macro level, when you step back, you know, at some point you have to have a good core of players in place to attract free agents to be able to build up and build out your roster, and they still aren't close to that point. You know, I think we'll know a lot more this time next year because Joel Embiid will be back on the court, presumably healthy. They'll have another top five, maybe top three pick from this year's draft, and that player will know, you know, whether they can be part of the core, whether they're anywhere near to building something like what Oklahoma City got when in a period of three years they drafted Durant, Westbrook, Ibaka, and Harden. How much of that is attributable to this notion of analytics, though? I mean, what what exactly are we seeing transpire? Well, I, I think the big thing is, you know, the value of draft picks and those cost-controlled rookie contracts. So that's why Philadelphia is so ardently pursuing those as opposed to signing players of similar ability to more money and free agency. And just the notion of, I, I think that's out there, if you win every trade... If you feel like you can always win a trade, you should probably be trading as many times as possible to increase your chances of building value with those trades. It's like running a fast-paced offense, except with trades. Yep. Is, is, there, is there opacity, a feature, or a bug, the Sixers? Compare them to the Astros. Compare them to other teams who, like baseball teams maybe, you know what their, their philosophy is. The fans, you know, they try to get the fans to buy in. We're doing this type of pitcher. We're trying to draft this type of team. Sixers, yeah, you know, we're not going to tell you what we're up to. Just trust us. Right, right. and I think that's one thing where, like, you know, Sam Hinkie is maybe not as comfortable being the public face of this as someone like his former boss, Daryl Morey, was. And it's a little tougher because then it leaves, you know, other people to fill in the explanations for them and allows you to think, oh, you know, they're making these trades because, you know, they wanted to trade Michael Carter-Williams because they were concerned they were winning too many games and would not, you know, it affect their lottery pick, which I don't think it enters their, fat, their thinking whatsoever. So you almost kind of need that charismatic leader to, to tell everyone and along the way. Although the interesting contrast is, you know, like Sixers fans seem to have completely bought into this. They were unhappy with the years of being kind of in the middle and not having the chance at a championship. It's really only nationally that people are like, uh, you know, it's kind of like the Simpsons. Won't someone please think of the Sixers fans? What about the children? (laughs) Um, When you did your rankings of teams and across the sports there are teams that are successful that are not near the top, that are not ranked all in. That was your term for teams that have totally bought into analytics. What do you make of, of teams like, you know, in baseball or basketball, the Lakers are near the bottom. That that team does well uh, sometimes. Uh, in baseball, the Giants, uh, the Phillies have won a World Series recently. What do you make of teams that are able to succeed in an era when analytics are so mainstream without being, you know, in the stream? 
Well, I can really only speak to basketball since that was that was my area of focus in this and my area of expertise. But you know, I think Jeff Van Gundy made the point in his panel. You know, it's crazy to see the Lakers near the bottom when they've won as many championships as you know everyone else on the list in the last thirty years. You know, I think that it, some people read it is this is the best organi- a Reiki of the best organizations by tears, and that certainly is not it. This is just one factor in what you're doing. Chicago is a good example of a team that doesn't seem to use analytics a lot in what they're doing, but they have tremendous scouting. They can figure out which four-year college players are going to continue to develop once they're in the NBA, and you know they kind of get to a team that makes sense analytically without actually using the numbers. So, hey, by all means, I, I would be, I would not tell them they should be doing something totally differently when they're having that kind of success. This is one piece of the puzzle. But I do think that you know the Lakers are a good example of a team that when the marquee free agency dries up and you no longer have that star talent and you have to kind of grind out and, and put together a roster the same as everyone else in the league, that extra edge that can be provided, that you know extra 2% to take Jonah Carey's book title, uh, when you don't have that, it does start to cost you over time. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Lakers, you know, 6 through 15, or maybe 2 through 15, are certainly not as strong as, you know, other teams in the league. And maybe that's where you see it, beyond the superstars. Kobe doesn't even know most of their names, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, all right, Kevin, uh, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing if the Sixers are able to who would they be proving wrong at this point there is a split in the uh in the analytics community yeah it's not necessarily that they would be proving all of the analytics community right but uh, uh we remember from last year's phone conference where he had some strong words they would definitely be proving stan van gundy wrong <laughs> all right thanks kevin all right thanks for having me kevin pelton writes about analytics and analytic-y type things for espn.com <laughs> analytic type things this is official it's official title it is we're, we're, we're kid, we continue to lose audience with our sophistication. <laughs> <laughs> Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. It's filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. This is a show that raises such fascinating philosophical questions as can you lie purposely but unknowingly what about unpurposely and knowingly one that i always struggle with because i'm fascinated by limb removal uh can you dismember someone without being responsible for killing them stefan's really stefan's going to get back to us on that i'm going to get back to that uh the jinx comes from andrew jarecki and mark smirling oscar nominees behind capturing the freedmen's and it was made with the cooperation of durst who's consistently maintained his innocence, while saying a bunch of really weird stuff. Your, your dismembering question gets back to the armor, and it depends on how well the gauntlets are, the rira braces, the van brace, the guard brace. These are all different parts of armor. The gorget. The gorget, the bassage, the French word for armpit. I'm not saying it right, but this is what you'd have to attack in order to delimb someone. <laughs> the jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst. It's on Sundays at 8, only on HBO. We had uh, Royce White on the podcast before. He was the first-round pick of the Houston Rockets, who has barely played in the NBA and argues forcefully that the league does not accommodate players' mental health needs, including his own. Our former Slate colleague David Hagland also wrote an excellent long feature about Delonte West, 
who believes he's been pushed out of the NBA because of his own battles with mental health problems. Uh, U.S. soccer star Landon Donovan has been open about his bouts of depression and his need to step away from his sport, a move that probably cost him a roster spot on the 2014 World Cup team. Um, but there really has not been anyone like Larry Sanders. He signed a $44 million contract extension with the Milwaukee Bucks in 2013. He's now decided to walk away from the game. Uh, let's listen to him. Uh, this is a video on the Players' Tribune website. Um, he's explaining his decision to walk away from the NBA. Well, I know I disappeared for a while. Uh, people were wondering where I was. I actually uh, entered into uh, Rogers Memorial Hospital, and it was uh, a program for anxiety and depression, mood disorders. It taught me a lot about myself. Uh, it taught me a lot about uh, you know what's important um, and where I would want to devote my time and energy. I think I, I love basketball. I, I always be playing basketball, but um, you know, for it to be consuming so much of my life and time right now, um, that's um, it's, it's not it's not there for me. That's not that worth it. Stefan, is this uh, different than what we've heard any player say before? Uh, circumstantially, I don't think that his retirement or his departure from basketball is is substantially different. And, and you mentioned a bunch of athletes. I can think of a few more. I mean, Shamiqua Holdsclaw ended up leaving women's basketball for mental health reasons and, and, and left the sport, came back briefly. And then now, according to her wiki bio, she's working as a mental health advocate. So I think these issues are universal. Um, the question is, how do leagues... How, how do leagues find ways to accommodate or to recognize that athletes are having mental health issues? And, the, you know, I think Sanders in his video on the Players' Tribune raises a point that I think Royce White also raised, which is why should we expect athletes to be any different? So what if you're making $44 million? So what if you were a first round draft pick? I mean, fundamentally, this is biology. This isn't that you can dribble and shoot well. And I think that's what gets lost when a guy like Larry Sanders particularly decides to step away from the game because we see the money. And if you read the comments about Sanders quitting, th that's where the bulk of them tend to go. Don't like, read the comments, Stefan. Don't read the comments. Never read the comments. Stefan slash Larry. Well, this comes up in so many different conversations about sports, uh, Mike, about whether it's a job versus something that the player should be grateful to play, both because it's a game and because of the money and players like Sanders, White, Donovan, by kind of em emphasizing the grind of it and the fact that it doesn't always necessarily feel fun and the money doesn't necessarily solve your problems. That's not something that a lot of fans want to hear about. Well, of course, it's a, a gift. And of course, you should feel grateful. But the way people should feel doesn't dictate the way people do feel. And it's hard to feel grateful if I think Donovan's in a separate category than uh, White and Sanders. And I'm sure there were many times when Donovan, at least, would say, yeah, I'm totally grateful. And I talked to uh, White, and he said those things when he was in a great frame of mind. So it is a complex issue because we're dealing with, I think, normally, it, it, mental health issues do present themselves at different points in people's lives. And often it's before people gain a huge amount of success. Like in your mm -hmm. 20s, they would present themselves. Royce White right out of college or in, in college and soon in out high of school, high school. Actually. Yeah. And so, you know, that will preclude you from becoming an extremely successful person in most other fields. But because we're talking about the physical aspect and just being a six foot ten 
muscular guy who could jump out of the gym, you know, oftentimes that doesn't matter. And if you, you know, can corral your mental health for most of the time, that could get you in the NBA. There's no equivalent with other walks of life. So with athletes, it's a little bit weird. I mean, there are a few things going on. And to your question, Josh, I think it's really easy for outsiders to say you should feel grateful. We forget how easy it is to acclimate to any situation. So you get used to the money, you get used to the accolades, you get used to the fact that you're, you know, asked to play a sport for a living. And then it really does become a grind. And there are other, you know, shitty aspects of being a professional athlete that outsiders maybe don't see. And also there's that third thing where if you ask most people would double your salary, improve your life greatly, most people would say yes. Yet when you ask people who are at that level of double the salary, they would also say, you know, I really need double my salary to improve my life. So we look at someone higher up on the economic ladder and we always say that person must not have problems and that's never true. The interesting thing to me, Mike, is that we expect athletes to be able to compartmentalize. We expect them to be able to segregate their mental health approach to the sport from the purely physical gift that got them there. And I think that's what the public really doesn't understand terribly well, that there is this distinction in many, not all certainly, but in many athletes' minds between how the game makes me feel and playing the game itself because they're different things and if you layer on top of that like you said the sorts of mental health problems that can take over young people's lives you know before the brain is fully developed by the late 20s then it can be a really toxic combination that can be you know debilitating for for some athletes that we've seen with players like Holtzclaw and White and now Larry Sanders but back to Mike's point I think you often hear stories about, oh, this guy could have made it to the league, but for, and some of that but for is is going to be the issues that Larry Sanders faces. You know, there are mm-hmm. so many reasons that people don't make the NBA, the largest of which is that there aren't that many opportunities to play in the NBA. And there are a lot of people that, that want to. But I think that there are probably, um, you know, a huge number of guys who, who face this, these issues before they can make it to the pros. And that if you make it through that Civ, it's going to be more rare to be um, like Royce White or like Larry Sanders and be able to get be a first round pick, get a huge contract. Meaning that the system has already weeded out the guys with yeah. mental health issues before they even get to the point yeah. where they're eligible to be drafted or they're good enough yeah. to be drafted. And this is the question that I have. Um, you know, White Sanders raised really good questions about the league's ability and willingness to accommodate players with mental health. But if I'm looking at this as a team executive, this is not me, Josh Levine, talking. This is uh, anonymous NBA GM. If you watch this Larry Sanders video, if you listen to Royce White talk, you're not going to want to have this guy on your team. It just seems like a big-ass problem. Larry Sanders talks about how he smokes marijuana and it's helped him cope and it's extremely convincing as like a normal uh, human being i'm like yeah you should probably smoke marijuana and he also better but as an nba gm i'm like i don't want this guy on my team he's just going to test positive for marijuana every week well and then sports illustrated there was a profile by ben goliver uh not long ago last december and you know Larry Sanders didn't just sort of quit out of the blue either. You know, he disappeared from the team for a while. He, he was, had a, he was on a nightclub. He was in fight. a nightclub fight. I mean, there were these external issues that the Bucks management couldn't have been terribly happy about, and we have no idea whether 
Sanders went to them and said, I'm really suffering from from mental health problems before what's happened in the last month or two. But Mike, the, the point is that these guys are kind of good spokesmen in one sense, but as far as changing the NBA's mind about accommodating players, this doesn't seem like it would help at all. Right. If you don't, if you take out motivation, they uh, they seem to be knuckleheads, as the catch-all phrase goes. And so how do you separate the knucklehead who's a knucklehead because he's a knucklehead versus the knucklehead who's a knucklehead because he has some mental issues and really doesn't matter that much. And maybe with Larry Sanders, a guy who was, you know, had the $50 million salary and I think was... In the uh, the hundred tenth, I was just looking at this list recently. I don't know somewhere near the top hundred best paid players in the NBA. How do you separate that from the guy who just likes to go out and get in bar fights? And really, shouldn't matter. What would not in the perfect world? Because in the perfect world, maybe people wouldn't have these mental health problems. But what would like the best case scenario if the NBA followed whatever industry in the world addressed the mental health issues of its employees to the absolute best. How would that look? How would that be different? Would Royce White and Larry Sanders still have a place in the NBA? Yeah, I think this is a society issue because you can't really point to that hypothetical, you know, corporate (laughs) entity that treats this with the sensitivity that it deserves. But I think, you know, what you want and hope for is that these players would have a kind of counseling services on the team that they would need. And beyond that, you would hope that, you know, teams would be able to think about context for behavior rather than just think about behavior in isolation. But you just have to acknowledge if we're being realistic about it, that when teams think about these guys, they think of them in terms of risk They're commodities. assessment. They're right. commodities. I mean, these, these services do exist in teams. I mean, every professional sports team has a team therapist, team psychologist, and players are encouraged to go talk to them. Do teams need to do a better job of trying to early identify whether players need help and then making sure that they receive help? Maybe. Um, do teams also or sports also need to be more progressive about how they respond to behaviors that reflect some sort of mental health problem. When Landon Donovan decided to take a hiatus from the U.S. men's national soccer team, Jurgen Klinsmann didn't exactly receive that with well, shall we say. He didn't say, I understand and appreciate this. He made it into an issue of the athlete's desire to play. Well, I'll admit that I was scrambling there, I think, mostly because it's not clear the Bucks did anything Anything wrong wrong. vis-a-vis mental health counseling. And I think, Mike, you raise the right question. There's just not a good answer for it. Yeah. And for everyone who we, we would love as an individual for Royce White to be able to achieve all he can achieve mm-hmm. in life and to flourish. But you know what? There's another guy who maybe could get a great shot at the NBA because he doesn't have the physical skills of Royce White, but his head's in the game a little better. And so that means that he'll fill the box score and defend the opposition a little bit better. And so we're not really talking about like society should seek full employment for everyone if we're sensitive to their needs. We're talking about the 12 positions on an NBA court. And if NBA GMs go through beyond the staff psychologist on the team, there is, you know, a new wave of analytics is analyzing how I was just reading about this in the Wall Street Journal, like micro expressions and how the players talk about disappointment and it's getting more and more attention. And if some guys benefit from that, wow, this is this guy's, you know, a fighter. This guy will play with a little bit of his chip on his shoulder, but not get overwhelmed. And if some guys benefited from that, 
it has to be with only 12 spots on an NBA roster that some guys don't. And it seems like guys like Royce White and Larry Sanders are going to be the guys that don't. Though, once they're on the team and once you identify that he's a $50 million talent, you should do what you can to get the most out of that. And it's also important, I think, for all of us to accept that some people just don't want to do this as a job, that it's okay right. for Larry Sanders and Royce White to say, right now, this isn't working for me. Right. With Sanders, it seems like the answer is just don't be judgmental yeah. at this point. And Phil, it seems like he's just kind of figuring stuff out and just don't be an asshole and say, you know, this guy should, uh, shouldn't walk away because of all the money. That's the right answer for now. Last month in Dallas, the world's 174th ranked tennis player, Denis Molchanov, lost a first-round match at a tournament to 303rd-ranked Augustine Velotti. That was not exactly headline news for anyone except Denis Molchanov, Augustine Velotti, and the people who bet money on them. And there's the rub. Nearly $900,000 was wagered on the match online, most of that coming in on the 22-year-old Velotti, even after the Argentine player lost the first set. Vladi did indeed come back and win, aided by Molchanov, who at one point fell to the ground and threw his racket across the court, not doing a very good job of pretending uh, like he was trying to win the match. Though nothing's been proven, it certainly appears as if Molchanov was trying to lose on purpose, and he's not alone. There's been strong evidence of match fixing um, in a bunch of ma- matches across tennis's lower levels. Uh, joining us in our D.C. studio is Ben Rothenberg who wrote about this last week for the upstart uh, internet website, Slate.com. Ben also writes about... www.slate.com. Ben also writes about tennis for the New York Times, is the co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast, and is the co-creator of the tennis fantasy game Racket Rally, which has hopefully not been beset by cheating scandals as of yet. Hello, Ben. Hello, Josh. So this is about the economics of tennis at this level, right? Explain the kind of gradient here between what the players are making for winning a match with the Dallas Challenger, for instance, and the kind of money that's being wagered. Right. For this match, I think the difference in winning and losing would probably be about $700, give or take, at this sort of level tournament. You get about 500 for playing there, which barely covers expenses for flying to Dallas from Ukraine or wherever else you're coming from in the world, and then a week of hotel as well. And the money getting bet on is huge. I mean, even for the most obscure random matches if there's money that can't be bet on sports it will be bet on sports more or less people will bet on anything you know dog races whatever and so actual tennis which is a fairly real sport it tracks <laughs> money no matter how how obscure it is and how you might think that no one would ever care people are always willing to make bets. that's pretty charitable of you to call tennis fairly real let's get <laughs> let's get serious here for a minute so you mentioned in your piece and ryan harrison who you interviewed a tour player you guys uh, discussed the general profile of a match fixer. Uh, describe who that uh, fellow might be. I think Dennis Molchanov fits that mold really well. I, the only time I had personal experience with him was when we were both in Germany at a tournament in Halle. It's a grass court tournament there, warm up with Wimbledon. And we were on the same train every day for like four or five days from Bielefeld, which is the big city there. And you were like, this guy looks like he's fixing matches. Well, it was just sort of sad because he was the second alternate. He lost in the last round of qualifying and needed two people to pull out to have him get a shot. And so every day he would walk on the train with his bag and sit there and take the 45-minute commute with me. And he was hopeless. He wasn't gonna, he didn't get in the tournament. Not Even the first alternate got in. And so the sort of growing frustration, not making much money, not breaking into the top 100, even getting that close for him. Those are the sort of people who you, who are profiled as being the ones who look for a less uh, 
upstanding way to make money. If this guy is sadly riding the train for 45 minutes without the hope of making money, and that's sad and pathetic, what does that make you? <laughs> it doesn't make me much better. Riding the train with him, and you can't even get in a tennis match. I know. It's rough. <laughs> and when he does get in, <clears throat> how much money is at stake? What could his winnings be in that tournament versus how much can he make if he just throws the match? Just getting in for that tournament would probably get you about $2,000 losing first round. But the offers that people get for throwing matches have been huge. I mean, you've seen one person we had in the story um, who got an offer for $300,000 to lose a first round match to a challenger, where he would have made normally $600 for just losing the first round match. So exponentially larger profits are there to be made if you play outside the rules. And that, my friend, is the time-honored formula for match-fixing in every sport. And let's put this into a sort of a global context, Ben. I mean, I assume we're talking about Asian gambling syndicates, the same sorts of people that have been implicated in trying to throw a FIFA and, and other professional sports matches, or do we not know where the tennis... Is the tennis underground in gambling different from the one in other international sports? The stereotype for tennis is the Eastern European stuff is the main sort of block of tennis-fixing that's the stereotype. Anyway, it could be coming from anywhere, obviously. That's where the sport is biggest in Europe, and the betting on it is a mostly European practice. So Eastern Europe is a sort of classic fixer profile. The $300,000 seems kind of excessive. It was a lot. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. I think maybe that guy like added an extra zero by mistake. That would seem more likely. No, that <laughs> does seem more like the range you hear more often. It's like 40000 50000 So. So we'll see. People dangle anything in front of people to get them to to bite, and then you see what they actually want. Yeah, maybe he would have taken the three hundred thousand, and then uh, it would have been uh, four dollars and a couple quarters once uh, once it actually happened. But um, Ian Dorward, um, yeah. he uh, has been writing about this and um, looking at betting patterns to try to identify how many suspicious matches there are, and he raised um, the point that you could just be tanking games and sets. Like you can bet on points. No. Points is rare. Really? Games you can definitely bet on. You can bet on game scores, too. So that was the main thing that I saw when I first sort of encountered tennis betting online. was the first time I was over in England in the summer of 2008, and so it was legal there. And just looking around websites, I didn't want to do anything. But I saw Lindsay Davenport was playing. I remember this. And the odds for her to – she was playing somebody ranked outside the top 100, nobody any good. But the odds for her to get broken at love in the next game were like 35 to 1. And so if she had just predetermined to drop her fourth service game to love – Someone could have made a lot of money off of that. That just so seems spot like spot a... fixing is the way that it's what mm -hmm. Ian and other experts think is happening much more regularly and almost completely undetectably have done. That precisely. just seems like a huge mistake to take bets on games like that because you know Dorward raised in your slate piece the possibility that players could split the first two sets and just play the third one for real um, and just pocket cash for for tanking each first two sets. I mean, it just seems like so easy and undetectable that you would wonder why the sports books would take action in that way. Now, there's money to be made. That's the thing. They think the risk is worth the reward right now. And that overall, I mean, overall... But even if they get taken, uh, you know, on, in a certain number of matches, the majority are still going to be on the level. Exactly. Yeah. You noted in the piece that uh, six and a half years ago, the Association of Tennis Professionals, the Women's Tennis Association, the International Tennis Federation, the Grand Slams all got together and formed something called the Tennis Integrity Unit, yes. which uh, has a I think we're part of the tennis 2015 on this podcast. tennis anti-corruption program. Um, uh, e. And in those six and a half years, you note that four players have been suspended. I mean, what is this? Is this just complete window dressing? Is there are there real efforts to try to go after players or for 
I don't know, Interpol or whoever investigates illegal gambling to go after the root causes of, of match fixing? We really don't know. That's the thing. The window dressing, the window is completely blocked out and boarded up. So we don't know what's going so on. So this inside. is not a transparent organization, the, the Tennis Integrity Unit. They don't anything except for their press releases when they suspend somebody. And that's it. And those, they don't even comment on those. It's just a few paragraphs on that. And so we don't know what's going on there. There have been other activities from police just recently, Danish police, this after my piece came out, actually, last few days, going further into investigation, uh, fixing it a futures tournament in Copenhagen. So, and Australian police arrested somebody else a few weeks ago. So there are other organizations policing this, literally the police, but tennis integrity is not entirely clear what they're doing. Is there, any, is there any pressure on the tennis integrity unit to like be more real? I have people calling them out for it, for sure. I'm not sure who else in terms of organizations or the bookmakers are putting pressure on, but it's it's tough to answer really any questions about them because they are very shadowy. Well, it seems like the issue here is that there's very little effect on fans because um, the level that we're talking about is not one where there's a lot of like popular... No, sure. Interest. Yeah. Um, who it affects are the players who are not fixing matches, and there's a huge um, break at you know is it like about a hundred or something? So there, there's a huge incentive here for players to get from you know rank number two hundred to inside the top a hundred, and right. so you can imagine the guys like that. Just like you know if you know Lance Armstrong is taking performance-enhancing drugs and forcing various other people to, the ones who don't take it, you know, that hurts their careers. Like, if you can't break into that that point. But if if there's no popular, if, if it doesn't matter to, like, the tennis fan at large, it seems like it's, you know, there, there's going to be a longer wait uh, to, to try to get something done about it. No, it definitely is out of the spotlight, and it's part of the structure of tennis that makes these guys who would in other sports be high-profile people. I mean, Molchanov being... 174. He was the 174th basketball player in the world. He could easily be an NBA starter. So these things, it's just a part of the structure of tennis that puts these people out of the spotlight. And it hurts the sport, obviously, because these are high-level roots of the game, and there needs to be a more solid foundation of it. Just because tennis is top-heavy structure doesn't mean that it can afford you know, root corrosion. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Is it really the roots? It doesn't seem to me that the <clears throat> top player, I'm a casual fan, but, you know, Federer, Nadal, I'm not going to name all the good players, but they didn't break in as the 130th best player, did they? They came, they, they were pretty prominent at a young age. And is it the usual course of things that you need to go all the way to 200 to have essentially a minor leagues of tennis players who are eventually going to be the kind of people you want to watch on TV? I guess my question is, is how having this lowest rung of tennis even worth it to uh, the big events? Or is there some other reason why the pro tennis tour goes this low? I mean, I saw Malchanov playing in Australian Open qualifying. They do need people to play to fill the draws. It's 128 player draws of the Grand Slams. And to get matches that are vaguely serviceable competitively to get on TV for the first rounds against the Federers and Nadal's, even though they do end up being cannon fodder, you do need players out there to stand on the other side of the net for three to five sets and entertain a crowd. I mean, there does need to be some depth in tennis, even though the hunger for, you know, caring about people that low isn't huge. And that if, if you know, Nadal was winning main tour matches at 15 or whatever, that I think is the exception. Like, you're, if, if we're thinking about the top five guys, they're not yeah. going to be down, you know, mucking it up with right. Dennis Molchanov, but there are guys in the top 10 and guys in the top 20 who have worked their way up over the years and have 
played at least played against people who probably tanked a match or two in their in their life oh for sure no definitely people who and that was one of the youngest people in the danish inquiry this week who got offered a chance to fix the match was 16 playing think, of the, think of the children i mean he was playing in his first ever pro event he was really excited he got a friend request from the international <laughs> tennis federation on facebook who asked him for his contact info which he believed and then soon enough as soon as he gave it to him fixers were offering him you know many kroners to tank so if Dennis Molchanov continues tanking, Dennis Molchanov is not going to be playing tennis for very right. long. That's the other thing about him is he's on a 12-match losing streak right now. Yeah. So he should have taken the chance <laughs> to win doing, a match when he could. Who is he's offering very odds? very poorly or very, very well. Who is exactly. still offering odds on Dennis Molchanov? Who is still giving the Molchanov line out there? He's still playing. That's the thing. I mean, he's still, he was in, he made it to the, he won the doubles title in Dallas where he did this first round tanking, which is awkward to, you know, do stay at the scene of the crime, quote unquote, for the whole rest of the week and have people walking around you and muttering about you the whole time. And then he's kept playing. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, his ranking, obviously, you can't tank only you, to stay in these professional tournaments. You have to maintain a certain ranking. And so he will need to start winning in order to keep well, having pr- can I Can I draft him in your fantasy tennis league? You can. He's top 300, so he is, he is available. I but they him. probably think that all I need is just a little bit of money, and then I can travel around better and hire a coach, and then I won't have to tank anymore. No, exactly. It's, a, it's For a lot of them, probably it's a one-time thing or a once-a-year thing. If you make a nice chunk of change getting $50,000 to tank one match, and it sustains the rest of your career for that year, as you can do it in moderation. You don't have to be a serial tanker. I think you have to do it in moderation to get away with it. Ben Rothenberg... Uh, the proprietor of Racket Rally, where Dennis Molchanov is probably a great bargain <laughs> on the market this week. He also writes about tennis for the New York Times and Slate occasionally. He's on his way to Indian Wells. Safe travels, Ben. And uh, keep your eye out for anything anything suspicious. I will do. Thank All you, eyes are going to be on Serena out there. Yes. He probably won't be tanking. When Molchanov wears the mustache, that's when he tanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, uh, why don't you hang out while we do After Balls? Because I wanted to ask you for a nominee for After Ball naming. I know that you are a yes. spelling bee yes. champion of tennis. What is the hardest name to spell on the men's or women's tour? And that will be our After Ball. And, well, so now this is this is a tough one for you because you have to pick the hardest name to spell, but one that you will be able to spell accurately. He has no he has no props in front of him. We're looking at him right now. <laughs> so tying into racket rally, the one person who we were missing a photo of for the longest time was this guy named Peter Goyovchik, who is German and was ranked inside the top hundred. He was the only person we were missing, and it's sort of a pile of consonants. So last name G O J O W. C Z Y K, nailed it. Yeah. How do you pronounce that again? Goyovchik. G O J O W C Z Y K. And do you have a do you have a photo of him now? We do. We did get one in Australia and open finally, so we were pretty excited about that. I got a photo of him because I just googled him. There you go. Go We could have done that that too. But yeah. All right, Mike. What is your uh, whatever that guy's name is? Goyovchik. So Minnie Minosa died, a great player, and I didn't realize really how great he was, just the combination of uh, speed and batting average, and I know that um, Bill James ranked him as, I think, the 11th best left fielder of all time, so that's pretty good. Also, because he was a Latino and black, he was affected by baseball segregation, and he had to wait until uh, Jackie Robinson integrated the league, probably lost a few seasons there. I was not aware that there was a push to get him in 
into the Hall of Fame. And if you want to say that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because he had this long career and he was a Latino pioneer, I'll buy that. But I was listening today to people making statistical arguments about Minnie Minosa. Now, here's a guy I haven't really gone back and looked at that, that, or I hadn't gone back and looked at the statistics that hard. But on WBEZ, the radio station out of Chicago that I was listening to this morning, because my local public radio station was doing an interminable pledge drive, they quoted a guy named Adrian Burgos Jr., who said, who is a historian of Latinos, baseball, sports, and urban history, and a professor at the University of Illinois, who said that other than Mantle and Williams, Minosa was the third best player in the American League during his era. And this is if you look at advanced stats. Which advanced stats? So I wanted to make sure I quoted him accurately, and I tweeted to Professor Burgos. Burgess, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. And he got back to me and he said that Minoso's war wins above replacement from 51 to 61 was only behind Mantle in the American League. His WPA, which is another good advanced statistic, was third behind Mantle and Williams. So I went back and looked at this and I could just not find, I, I did not find that to be true. Mini Minoso was top 10 in both leagues in war. And I think it's maybe a little, it's not dishonest to just take the American League, but if you're talking about a deserving Hall of Famer, he was the ninth best in baseball in 56. And in 54, he had really an amazing career. He was the best player other than uh, Mays and Duke Snyder. His 1954, and I'm not taking credit away. I want to tell you how good a, a year he had in 54. And he had a number of great years. He had 18 triples, 19 home runs, 18 stolen bases. His uh, OPS was 946. And, you know, he played a great left field. So he had, he had years that were close to that. But, you know, his lifetime home runs, if you want to go by that, was, uh, and remember, he had, he had 7,708 bats and he hit 186 home runs. Going through all the uh, advanced statistics about Minosa, a very good player who you could call a pioneer, but I don't think based on advanced stats or any stats, there's an argument that he's close to a Hall of Famer. I don't know. It gets to me. We're going to talk about this in the uh, in the bonus segment. Maybe we'll talk about eulogizing the dead and Anthony Mason. And sometimes we just tend to, especially with sports, elevate these players to a place they don't belong. And I'm always the first player. I'm always the first guy to say, look, you don't want to say it on the occasion of his death, but he was good, but he wasn't a deserving Hall of Famer, just based on the stats. Does that make me churlish? Does that make me wrong? Just makes me stat-minded and, you know, whatever the, if the Hall of Fame is a thing, is a measuring stick, I'm here to say Minnie Minosa measures up a little short. And don't forget, Mike, Minoso also in our memories becomes a sort of larger-than-life guy because Bill Vec brought him back to the team in the 1970s so he could play in a fourth decade, and then he brought him back in the eight, in 1980 for three games for a fifth decade, and then his son Mike Vec at the St. Paul Saints in the Northern League, which I wrote about, brought him back in 1993 so he could play in another decade. So there is this sort of legend of Minoso as this all-round good guy yeah. um, who entertained people and was beloved in Chicago and elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. And his name is Minnie Minosa. You need baseball names like that in sports. <laughs> All right. I wish that Minnie Minoso was uh, the name of our afterballs because I've, in the last five minutes, forgotten how to pronounce this guy's name. Goyacek? All right. Maybe. 
Uh, Stefan, what's your Goya check? Well, we've had a couple of mentions of the sport of bandy on this program in the last few weeks uh, in our conversation with John Hawk about his film on the Soviet 1980 hockey team. I think I randomly said bandy last week, if I'm not mistaken. But now it's time to get more specific. Never, never random. Never random. It was always intent. And the intent was to get to this after ball. Bandy is 11 v 11 ice sport played on a rink the size of a soccer field. It uses a small, usually pink or orange rubber ball instead of a puck. The blade of the stick is flat and rounded on the bottom, shorter than a hockey stick. Checking isn't allowed, so skating skills are everything. The goal is 7 feet high and 11 feet wide, so it's about 3 times the size of a hockey net, or to use a comparison that I'm sure everyone can understand, it's just a little bit bigger than a team handball net. To cover this vast expanse on skates, the goalie doesn't use a stick. Instead, he wears mitts that look like oversized 1880s baseball gloves or like Homer Simpson's hands. Uh, organized bandy seems to have begun in England in the early 1800s. The soccer team Nottingham Forest was founded as the Nottingham Forest Football and Bandy Club, but bandy died out in England around the 1920s. The sport became a niche pastime in just a few places. The International Bandy Federation wasn't formed until the 1950s, and for the first 30 years there were just four members, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and the Soviet Union. More than 30 countries play bandy now, but Russia and Sweden totally dominate, with Finland and the wily Kazakhs just behind. The United States has been sending a team to the bandy world championship since 1985, but it's never meddled. You'd think that the U.S. and Canada would be good to get, would be good at bandy. They could throw together a good team. But hockey. There's also just one full-sized outdoor bandy rink in the United States in Roseville, Minnesota, just outside the Twin Cities, which hosted the U-17 Women's World Championships last week. Just about everyone who plays on the U.S. men's and women's teams is from Minnesota. The U.S. is solidly in the second tier of bandy-playing nations. The Men's World Championships broken up into A and B divisions. After a demoralizing demotion to the B division in 2012, the U.S. romped that field in 2013, promoted back to the A division last year, finished sixth out of eight. This year, the red, white, and blue open up against Latvia on March 29th at the 10,000-seat airplane hangar indoor Erofi Arena in Khabarovsk in way far east Russia. С 29 марта по 4 апреля чемпионат мира по хоккею с мячом в Хабаровске. Приходи, будет жарко. So, Josh, I hope your ticket to Kabarovsk is refundable because things look sold out for the Bandy World Championships. But even... I can't I, get a press pass? I don't know. Are you willing to write about Bandy? No. Uh, then you can't get a press pass. <laughs> Even another miracle on ice, though, wouldn't match what might be the most feel-good sports story in recent years, and that would be the national bandy team of Somalia. That's right, the Somali national bandy team. It was started a couple of years ago in, in the Swedish town of Borlenia, home to 3,000 Somali refugees of war and poverty. A local businessman wanted to help the Somalis feel more at home and also try to reduce anti-immigrant racism and discrimination. So he persuaded players from a local Somali soccer team to try bandy. He put them on rollerblades and then ice skates, got the International Bandy Federation's approval to form a Somali team, and nine months later, the National Bandy Team of Somalia competed in Division B of the 2014 World Championships in the risk stronghold of Irkutsk. The Somali gave up 72 goals in five games, but they also managed to score three, two by a Somali-Canadian high school senior who was tipped off about the team by a relative in Sweden and was flown to Russia just before the first game. 
The humanitarian-minded local who hatched the idea was also media savvy, or at least he saw cool runnings, because in addition to luring international media from the BBC to the Wall Street Journal to write about the Somalis, he also got two popular Swedish TV personalities to make a documentary about the quixotic bandy quest. The film Trevilkt Folk, Nice People, debuted in January in Sweden, and if Google Translate is to be trusted, it's getting some good reviews in Sweden. After the cameras left, I am pleased to report that the Somalis have kept playing bandy. The team returned to the Worlds last month when Division B play was held in Khabarovsk, and they did better. Somalia played four games, scoring three times again, but they sharply improved on defense, allowing just 49 goals. The Somalis even held one opponent, China, to under 10, losing by just the score of 8-1. to one. Bandy, the new team handball. Josh, what's your Goyovchik? A very similar afterball concept for me, Stefan. To Bandy? What's better, Bandy and Somalia or Ultimate Frisbee in India? Ooh, we'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> uh, so Sundance and the Gates Foundation have something called the Sundance Institute Short Film Challenge. Uh, movies about an empowering person or an optimistic story about individuals and communities who are overcoming poverty and hunger combating disease or improving health guess you didn't win that uh, prize did you somalian bandy movie uh <laughs> jennifer miller writes in fast company one of the winners this year was a movie called 175 grams which is 154 grams better than alejandro gonzalez and 21 grams and is also about ultimate frisbee in india the movie is only eight minutes long you can watch it for free on vimeo it documents how ultimate is in a very small way a force for social equality. Bandy movie feature length. <laughs> hey, it's not about the size. It's about how many awards you win. Ultimate, cheap, easy for anyone of any social class to play. It's welcoming to both men and women. A 2012 story in the New York Times noted that Ultimate had made its first foray into popular culture in India in a film called Love Failure, wherein the hero decides to go to Ultimate practice rather than chatting on the phone with his girlfriend. Made the right decision. That Times piece by Ankita Rao notes that there was tension between the Flying Disc Federation of India and many of the established Ultimate teams. And indeed, this past October, the World Flying Disc Federation revoked the membership of the Flying Disc Federation of India, saying that it has ignored active flying disc players in the country, consistently failed to send athletes or teams to WFDF-sanctioned events despite registering for them, and has not demonstrated any effort to grow or develop disc sports in the country. For shame, Flying Disc Federation of India. But do not fret, there is another organization in place, the Ultimate Players Association of India, and they will be sending a team to the World Championships of Beach Ultimate in Dubai next week. They'll be wearing some very snazzy uniforms that involve peacocks and neon green. You can order them for $50 at indiaultimate.org. It says the deadline to order is January 30th, but maybe just send them money. They'll let it slide. I don't know. I haven't tried. But there are peacocks involved. Uh, the Indians probably won't win this tournament, peacocks uh, be damned, because they are not quite a world power in the sport. The World Flying Disc Federation's first world ultimate country ranking list has the U.S. in first, Canada second, Germany third, India 43rd, ahead of only Turkey and Uganda. But India has definitely got the team name thing figured out. At the 2014 Chennai Heat Beach Tournament, the competition included UFO Rider, Jumbish Trailblazers, Spirit It Away, Confused Mango Pickle, which was the winner of the Spirit Award, Airborne Chicken Pox, 
airborne monkeypox, and of course, airborne smallpox, the most dangerous team of all. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.